I got a confession to make as we start off this morning, and it's an unusual one maybe, but it is this, I love the title of my sermon. (laughs) I love the title of the sermon. And the title of the sermon is this, The Sacrament of Living. The Sacrament of Living. And um, you might think that sounds strange and Wow, that's creative. Well, I got to confess again, it's not my idea. In fact, I borrowed this from a man named A.W. Tozer. Tozer, if you know him, he actually gave his life to Christ not that far from here. In 1914, he was working in the tire uh, company in Akron. And he left work that day and he was walking home. And he heard a, a preacher out on the street. And the preacher was yelling, if you want to get right, if you want to be saved, call out to God. That's all he heard. He walked home. That night he went up into his attic and he did just that. He turned his life over to Christ. And for the next 44 years, he served as a pastor and a teacher and a writer in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, CMA Churches. And he wrote books over this time. And one of the books that he wrote is what we now term to be a Christian classic. In 1948, he wrote The Pursuit of God. And in the pursuit of God, he wrote a chapter, and it's chapter 10, it's the final chapter, and he calls it the sacrament of living. And I've always liked that. And as I read that again this week, I started to think that over and think, what does that really mean, and what does it call us as Christians to do, especially as we think about this weekend and Labor Day weekend, a weekend where we honor the American worker and what they've done to make this country prosperous. And so I got to thinking, and I reread that chapter, and I I saw what Tozer was saying, and he's bringing out that age-old problem that we have as Christians. Problem that we've been facing for centuries, millennium. The problem is we are born again. Once we become Christ followers, we become part of a spiritual world. And I think that spiritual world this morning is represented by this pulpit. You know the spiritual world I'm talking about. We pray, we fast, We read our Bible, we come to church, we sing praise songs, we go to growth groups. We do all these things that are spiritual because we live in this spiritual realm. We're now citizens of heaven, the Bible tells us. We're we're changed, we're renewed, we become one with Christ. The problem is, the problem is, I'm still stuck in this body and I'm still living in this natural world, the work world. To me, this symbolizes work. <laughs> I don't know. You think about it, you know, you go to work maybe, and, and whether you're in a factory or whether you're in, a, whether you're in an office or even at home and you're gathering in the kitchen, but where you sit around and, and take a break and drink and you discuss the office gossip. You talk about the things that have been going on in the firm or in the factory. Or the latest sports news. Pastor Walt and I have been gathered around this over the last few weeks wondering which would happen first. Christ coming or the Indians beat the Tigers. (laughs) We're just not sure. One of those is going to happen. We just don't know which one first. But you know what it is. This is the everyday world. This is the world we live in. Even though we're part of this spiritual world, we're part of this secular world. 
the sacred world, as Tozier would call it, and this secular world, the world where I got to get up in the morning and still take a shower and brush my teeth. I'm still hungry, so I got to pop my Pop-Tarts in this morning and eat my Pop-Tarts and drink my coffee. This is the world where we got to change baby's diapers. This is the world where we get traffic tickets. This is the world where we get disease. This is the world where we face workplace dilemmas. Some of the ones I always hated. You know, as an accountant, some of the things you hate to hear is when somebody comes in and the thing, they say, well, the guy who prepared my tax return last year let me deduct those. Yeah. Yeah, those three business trips to Hawaii where I took my wife and eight kids and three dogs. Deduct it all, come on. Or even worse, what's the chances that the IRS will ever audit my return? They'll never find it, come on. And you know you're faced with those same dilemmas every day. Whether they be at work, whether they be at home, whether they be at school, we live in this secular, in this material, in this natural world, even though we are citizens of another world. And Tozer's looking at this, and he says, we got a problem, because pretty soon we start trying to live in two worlds. And we get dragged, and sometimes we forget what world we're in. And I don't really want to take this world into this world, because I'll be deemed as too spiritual, but I certainly don't want to bring this world into here and let church people hear what I might. We forget what worlds we're in. It's easy to forget. Let me tell you a story. Just a few weeks ago, my family was in, my children, our children were in for a few weeks. And we wanted to do something. We thought, well, there's just got to be some, something we can do around here that's exciting, that's fun. And so we went to Lakeview Cemetery. <laughs> wow, that's a neat place. It's a neat place. President Garfield and his burial place is there. Walter and Emma Malone, founders, one of, some of the founders of this church are buried there. Founders of Cleveland Bible Institute and, and Malone University in Canton. They're buried there. We went there. They're not buried too far from where Elliot Ness is buried. So I went down to Elliot Ness's grave site. But we were there. We walked into a chapel called the Wade Chapel. Beautiful. You need to go if you haven't been there. You walk in. I'm thinking, okay, we're going to look at this chapel. Well, the first thing I notice, there is a guide who's going to talk to us. And there's other people gathered there. And he says, sit down. I'm going to tell you about this place. And he started to explain it. This place has all Tiffany glass designed by the Tiffany, Tiffany family. And it's beautiful and it's gorgeous. And it's telling a story from Old Testament to New Testament up to the resurrection of Christ. And it's magnificent. And he got done with his story. And when he got done, he looked at the one guy and he said, um, you must be a, are you a preacher? He said, I noticed you were shaking your head, Yes. You're like, yes, every time I was talking, he, he, was, he was giving us Hebrew meanings of words, and he was, he was going into all this detail of what's up there, and this guy, I, he was going, yeah, yeah. And he got, oh, no, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a preacher. Yeah, okay. So we're walking out, and my wife, Sheila, she says, I guess we should have told him there was another preacher there. <laughs> and I said, oh, one of those other guys was a preacher? She looked at me, and she said, no, you. <laughs> I go, oh yeah, I forgot. <laughs> I forgot. And if, if you don't 
if you don't remember, you can get caught between worlds acting in a way that that's not what God wants us to act, the way that God wants us to be. And so we are caught, as long as we're living here, between two worlds. But Tozer had the thought to say this. He said, you know, in reality, there is no difference between the sacred and the secular. In fact, he understood that people have been doing, dealing with this for years. Back in Corinthians, the people there had some of the same dilemmas. They had been saved. They had been called. But they were still living in a very, very sensuous, very evil, a very pagan society. It would become time to eat. And they say, well, what do we eat? And they'd go to the market. And they would see this fine group of meats. And they see these steaks that really look good. Unfortunately, there's a sign there that said, these have been offered to idols. Dilemma. If I'm a spiritual world, and I've been born again, and I believe in Christ, but I'm here in the natural world, and I got to eat, and I see this steak that would be so good with potatoes and asparagus and a great salad and some key lime pie. And, uh, well, sorry, I have to wait a little bit. Oh, man. What do I do? What do I do? Worse yet, what if I go up and there's no sign? What if I don't know if it's been sacrificed to idols or not? What do I do? Even worse, what if I go out to dinner with an on-Christian? He invites me to lunch, and he says, let's have some steak. And by the way, I see on the menu, it says, Steak offered to idols. What do I do? What do I do if there's a Christian with me? And so this dilemma that has been faced for centuries is not new to us. It's how do I live in this world when I'm a citizen of this world? And Paul starts walking through some principles. But he sums it up in this verse, chapter 10, verse 31. He says, so... Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. He says, there's got to be a principle that guides my actions. There's got to be a principle that I'm going to follow that keeps me from doing this battle. And he says, whatever, whatever. That is an indefinite pronoun. It means whatever. I looked up the word all in Greek. You know what it means? All. If there's one thing I've been taught is when God says all and the Bible says all, it doesn't mean 50% of the time. It doesn't mean 80% of the time. It means 100% of the time. Everything I do, whether I'm in this world or I am in this world, whether I got to make those decisions of eating or whether that individual was drinking or whatever that my situation I may be in, I need to do it and to glorify God all the time. And Tozer is saying there is no difference. I need to glorify God here as well as I need to glorify God here. There can't be any division. 
there can't be any bifurcation. There can't be this, I'll be this way amongst these friends and these this way amongst these friends. Can it be done? How is it done? Well, I started looking and I found a perfect example. In fact, anytime we want to see an example, it's good to look at Jesus. Jesus is a perfect example of someone who could take the secular and the sacred and cross that bridge. In fact, we know Jesus was 100% man, but 100% God. But yet the Bible tells us he was faced with every issue that we were faced with. He was faced with every temptation that we're faced with. But he's a model, and here's why. In John 8, 29, Jesus says this, I always do what pleases him, and him is God. Jesus says, here's the key, to glorify God, I always do what pleases him. Can we live up to that standard? Is that easy? To me, we can read all through this Bible and we can try to learn all the doctrine, but in the end, do I do what pleases God in this world as well as I do in this world? That's the standard that Jesus places out there. He is the model for us. As I've thought about that, my life verse that I've kind of claimed all along has been Romans 12, 1. It actually has been 12, 1 and 2, but for this morning it's Romans 12, 1. And in the New Living Testament, it says this. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice. Living and holy sacrifice. The kind he will find acceptable This is truly the way to worship him. As I've looked at that verse and I've said, how am I going to please God? How am I going to worship him? I do it by offering myself. I do it by making myself a sacrifice. I do like Jesus did. I try to please him in all that I do. And Tozer says this, every act, get this, every act of a Christian life is or can be as truly sacred as prayer or baptism or the Lord's Supper. Every every act of a Christian life is or can be as truly sacred as prayer, baptism, or the Lord's Supper. The sacrament of living Giving your life. We're not bringing down baptism. We're not bringing down the Lord's Supper. We're not bringing down prayer. We are raising our lives and saying, if I am doing everything to glorify God, Jesus Christ, although he lived in a secular world and in a natural body, never performed a non-sacred act. He said, I always please God. I always do what pleases him. Why is this important? It's that why question. Pastor Kevin mentioned a few weeks ago, you know, the kids, they always ask why. (laughs) Why is this important? 
Well, I think it's important because we know God's a holy God and he wants us to be holy. But there's another theme that runs through Scripture. There's another theme that I think makes it critically important that we understand that we are citizens of both worlds. There is no difference. The sacred and the secular to a Christian are one. Everything becomes sacramental. Everything becomes sacred. And I think it's this. Jesus kicked it off in his first discourse on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, he said, you know what, guys? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And then he went about teaching them how they needed to act in this world. How they needed to be a representative of Christ in this world. Matthew chapter 5, read it. Paul picks it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, you know what? We are ambassadors of Christ. We are representatives of Christ wherever we go. Peter picks it up in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says this, live such good lives that they, the pagans, may see your good works and do what? Glorify God. There is a world that's watching how we live our lives. There is a world watching to see if there are hypocritical Christians who come in and get behind the pulpit and preach and take sacraments and give their, say they're giving their lives to Christ on Sunday and going out, as we say, living like the devil in the secular world. There is eyes that are watching everywhere we go. And Jesus says, you are salt, you are light. Paul says, you're an ambassador. And Peter says, do everything, everything to bring honor and glory to him because people are watching. And so, how are we going to deal with this? And this becomes difficult, especially in this workaday world that we live in. I was going to say tomorrow, but it's not tomorrow, Tuesday. Many of you will be going back to work. Many of you will be going back to school. Many of you will be working in your homes. How do we live that? I love this definition of work. It comes from Reverend John Stott. He says this, work is the expenditure of energy, manual or mental, or both, in the service of others, which brings fulfillment to the worker, benefit to the community, and here we see it again, glory to God. Whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. As we go about as laborers this Labor Day weekend, how do we go about working for Christ? Why is it important? And what can we do with eyes watching us. And Jesus, I think, gives us a parable, a story. I just want to read through this parable as we see how God views a worker. And it's found in Mark chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to that. If not, it's be on the screen. Also, we have Bibles there in the pews in front of you, and you can grab those. But this comes out of Mark chapter 4. 
And it's a story that Jesus tells about a worker. This worker is in the agricultural business, which many would have been at that time. His hearers would have had a very clear understanding of this worker. And it goes like this. Chapter 4 of Mark, verse 1. Once again, Jesus began teaching by the lake shore. A very large crowd soon gathered. So he got into the boat. Then he sat in the boat while all the people remained on shore. He taught them by telling many stories in the form of parables, such as this one. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seed. As he scattered across the field, some of the seed fell on the footpath, and some of the birds came and ate it. Other seed fell on a shallow soil with underlying rock. The seed sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow. But the plant soon wilted under the hot sun. And since it didn't have any deep roots, it died. Other seed fell among the thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants. So they produced no grain. Still other seeds fell on the fertile soil and they sprouted and grew and produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as had been planted. Then he said, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Jesus is telling this parable. A parable introduces us to the kingdom of heaven. A parable gives us an insight into God's kingdom. A parable is something that needs to be explored. and Our imagination put towards it and understand. But on this day, I don't think the disciples' imagination was working too well. This is one of those tough days. Maybe it was a long week. And they were having trouble, and, and so they get alone, and in some intervening verses here, they says, you know, we, we, need this under, we need this explained to us. What is it you're talking about? What do these parables mean? And so Jesus, in this one circumstance, this only one circumstance, actually interprets his parable. And he picks it up in verse 14, and he says this. The farmer plants seed by taking God's word to others. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message only to have Satan come at once and take it away. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, since they don't last long, they fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. The seed that fell among the thorns represents others who hear God's word. But all too quickly, the message is crowded out by the worries of this life. The lure of wealth and the desire for other things so no fruit is produced. And the seed that fell on good soil represents those who hear and accept God's word and produce a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as been planted. Some people say that really this parable is the parable of the soils. We should look at the soils and some would say, even the seed, and we need to understand, we do hear that the seed is the word of God. But this morning, I want us to focus on the worker, the sower. And to help us focus on that, I think it's good to see a picture at times. I've brought along a picture. This picture was actually painted in 1880, 1888 by Vincent van Gogh. A few of you may remember a few years ago, we looked at some van Gogh paintings as part of a sermon series. Well, here's another Van Gogh. And if you don't know, Vincent Van Gogh, before he became a painter, which he did for only a very few years, he, his father was a minister, and he even for a short time was a pastor himself. 
And so we look at this picture and we understand that Van Gogh painted a picture of a sower on canvas about 30 times. This was a passion of his. And the reason the sower was a passion, probably because it brought three together, three of his life passions. And it's his, his love of nature, his respect for peasants, and his deep devotion to the word of God. And so, and so um, Van Gogh is, is painting this picture, and you see it here. You see the, the picture of the sower. You see the, the sower walking through, and you see his gate, and you can see him throwing out the seed. And we see in Van Gogh a desire to see and to experience being a sower. In fact, he would write, write to some of his friends and say he sees his ministry when he was 24 year, old, 24 year old and he heard this message and he went out and preached. He says, I see myself as being a sower. It doesn't make any difference where I sow my seed. It's not my job to know where the seed goes or to be responsible for what happens to the seed. It's just my job to be a sower. And he saw himself as a sower. But as inspired as he was just on the subject, he was even more inspired or motivated because of his love for another artist's work, Jean-Francois Millet. Jean-Francois Millet. And I, we have his work here too. And, and if you look at this, now uh, the, the Cleveland pronunciation of this is Jean Francis Millet, I know. But, uh, but uh, we'll go with the, with the uh, uh, f- f- French version Millet. And you see a different picture, but you see the same gate. You see the same step. You see the same throwing out of the seed. And it's a beautiful picture. This is painted 38 years prior to that. It was 1850 when this was painted by Millet. And you can see, if you look closely, that he pretty much, Van Gogh, copied the sower of Millet. But if you put them next to each other and look at them side by side, you see a few differences. One main difference is in the Malay's picture is 40 inches high. It's 40 inches high and the sower is a dominant player. The sower takes up most of the picture. Look at Van Gogh's. In Van Gogh, what is center? What is prominent? Take a trip here in a minute. What is prominent? It's the sun. In letters to friends, we know that in Van Gogh's paintings, yellow is his symbol of God. And we see this painting from Van Gogh, and we see him saying here, you know, I as a sower, I have a job to do. I have a job, and I cannot be deterred from it. And the sower goes about, and he sows everywhere. But it's God who is center. It is God who provides the sun. It is God who watches over. It is God who is responsible for the results. Our job as workers is to sow. Our call is to Christ. He is center. He is with us in the fields. He is with us in the factories. He is center no matter where we go. Our call is to serve and to spread. How are you doing with that? How are you doing in your seed spreading? I love that picture of the guy, the sower, walking out. And he's, he's in the field and, 
And it doesn't matter that there's a path, a rocky path in the middle of Van Gogh's picture. He spreads the seed. It doesn't matter. He says, it's my responsibility to spread the seed. It doesn't matter that there's a black bird. You might not see it very well at the end of that path. There's a black bird. He's picking up some of this. I still, I spread my seed. I go about spreading the seed. It doesn't matter that I don't see any results. I spread the seed. I spread the seed in the factory. I spread the seed in the marketplace. I spread the seed at school. I spread the seed at the gas station, in the doctor's office. God calls us to keep spreading, keep spreading. He says, don't worry about the soil. It's your job to spread. And Van Gogh sees that very clearly. He says, it's God's job. He is watching over. And I just spread. The sower's job is to spread and to keep spreading and to keep spreading. Even if I don't see results, I may be spreading seed with my boss for years, decades. I just keep spreading. I just keep living a life that glorifies God, no matter which world I'm in. So many times we as Christians, we get in our secular world or our sacred world and we spread all our seed here. Oh, let's worship God. Let's praise him. Let's have our Bible studies. Let's do all these things. Let's, we keep spreading seed, spreading seed, spreading seed, spreading seed. But it's in the field, in the back there, that's already grown. That's not where seed goes. Seed goes out in the world. I think maybe, oh, I'm sorry, sitting in the front row, bad place to sit today, I know. I think Van Gogh may have been inspired also by, first, by Paul in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 3, there had been a big dispute. People had been saying, hey, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I, you know, I follow this guy, I follow this guy. But Paul writes this, after all, who's Apollos? Who is Paul? The sower. Do you notice how much smaller the sower was in Van Gogh's piece? The sower is not the central character. Apollos is not the central character. Paul is not the central character. We are only God's servants to whom you believe the good news. Each of us did the work God gave us. I planted the seed in your hearts. Apollos watered it. But it was God who made it grow. The one who planted and the one who waters work together for the same purpose, and both will be rewarded for their own hard work. For we are both God's workers, and you are God's field. There is a massive, a massive amount of seed that needs to be spread. You don't believe it? I, I came across, and thanks to Brother Dan Sisko, he pointed out to me this week an article in Christianity Today. And we have some statistics up here, and I love statistics because as we talked this morning, you can make them say whatever you want to say. But these statistics are pretty amazing. This says, and if you can read them here, North Americans, not who aren't Christians, who don't know a Christian. Gordon-Conwell University Seminary did a study, and they published this. And they said in North America, and this, for this study, North America is Canada, 
in the U.S., not Mexico. Most of these are in the U.S. It's, they said that one out of every five non-Christians do not even know a Christian. They do not personally know a Christian. No Christian has gone out at work or at school and spread some seed. No Christian has said, hey, I have something you need. Nobody has done that to him. And you see, it's by the group, by Buddhists, 69, 66%, Chinese folk, 75%, Hindus, 78% of them do not even know a Christian. How are they going to hear if no one's spreading seed? How are they going to hear? How are they going to hear if we are in our sacred world and we don't venture out into our secular world and be the light of the world, be an ambassador? You know what this article said? The biggest reason for this is immigration. These folks are coming to America and they are getting in their groups. They live together. They live in, they live in villages. They live in cities. And the Christians will not venture into their communities. The Christians will not venture into their territory. The Christians will not be the salt and the light. How sad it is. How sad it is to know that there are people in this country, 14 million, who don't even know a Christian. What can we do? Well, we can't make them be Christians. That's God's job. God can, God can create. God can bring them to him. But he needs somebody to take the word. He needs somebody to be a seed sower. You never know. You never know who you're going to impact. You never know that one person you're going to change. Just like Peggy Cavell probably never knew who she was going to impact. Peggy Cavell volunteered to be a worker in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. It was at the end of World War II. And she volunteered and said, I will do whatever needs to be done. And she would go in and, and she would make the lives of these prisoners wonderful. She'd come up to him and say, is there anything I can do for you? If you need anything, ask me. I'll take care of it. These Japanese prisoners of wars hated Americans, but they noticed something in Peggy's life. They noticed somebody who was planting seed day after day. She would love on him. She'd care for him. Until one day, a few of them who spoke English said, why are you doing this? And Peggy says, well, I have to because Japanese soldiers killed my parents. They said, what? He says, well, you understand my parents were missionaries in Japan. They fled and went to Manila. They sent us home to America. But while they were in Manila, the Japanese soldiers conquered Manila and they found them, her parents, with radios and said, you're spies, and they beheaded them. Tremendous impact on these Japanese prisoners of war. One of the prisoners that returned to Tokyo met up with Captain Mitsuo Fushida. I don't know if you recognize the name, Mitsuo Fushida. Mitsuo Fushida had risen up in the Japanese Naval Air Force to the point where he was not only very high up, but he helped plan and then he led the attack on Pearl Harbor. 
In fact, it was Captain Fushida who at 7.40 a.m. on that fateful morning sent out a green, sh- a green flare from his cockpit to let everybody know that the plan was going as expected and to keep going. It was Captain Fushida who at 7.49 told his flight assistant to radio out, Torah, Torah, Torah. They're not expecting us. We're going ahead. It was Captain Fushida who at 7.55 was of the first ones over Pearl Harbor for the bombing of Pearl Harbor. It was Captain Fushida who was there when the Japanese surrendered to the Allies. Captain Fushida was called one day by Douglas MacArthur to give testimony about prisoner of war camps, war crimes, and it infuriated Fushida. He said, everybody treats everybody rotten. I know they treat people just as bad in American prisoner of war camps as we did. Until he heard the stories from some of his people about Peggy Covell. He said, how can that be? How can somebody whose parents were killed have that much love and forgiveness in their heart? A little bit later, he was called to testify again. And as he was walking to the place where he was to testify, he saw an American soldier with a track about the story of Jacob DeShazer. The track was called, I Was a Prisoner in Japan. Well, he was interested in that because he had made his life's follow-up after the war of studying prisoner of war camps, and he went and grabbed it. He went and got the book, and he read about Captain DeShazer, or Soldier DeShazer. He was shot down. Over, over, actually over China, but he was captured in a part that was controlled by Japan. During this time, he was tortured. The folks that he had been flying with were killed, and he hated the Japanese, and he vowed he would get even. Until one day in his cell, he finally decided, I need to read a Bible, and he asked for a Bible. In a while, he got one. They said, you can have it for three weeks. And after he was done reading it, he said, I got to love these people. And he began loving his captors. He showed them respect, and they showed him respect. He vowed that if he got out, he would come back as a missionary. Well, he was rescued. He went to Seattle Pacific University. And he went back to Nagoya, Japan, as a missionary. And started a church. Captain Fushida was so overtaken by these stories, he said, I got to read this Bible. He started reading it. The Holy Spirit started speaking to him. And Captain Fushida, who led the bombing of Pearl Harbor, gave his life to Christ. He went to Nagoya and he knocked on the door of Captain Soldier DeShazer's house. And he says, sir, I've wanted to meet you. I'm Mitsuo Fushida. DeShazer knew that name. He greeted him. He threw his arms around him. He said, come on in. For the next 25, 30 years, Fushida was an evangelist around the world. He worked with Billy Graham. He knew Billy Graham. At the 25th anniversary of Pearl Harbor, he was there, kneeling at the graves of the Americans who had died. Because of the seed that had been planted by Peggy Covell.
and Jacob to Shazer. Who would have thought it? That's rocky soil. That's thorny soil. God can do miraculous things when we want to give him the glory. Colossians 3.17 says, and whatever, there's that whatever word again, and whatever you say or do, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to him through God the Father. Tozer ends the book, Pursuit of God, with this. Let a man sanctify the Lord God in his heart, and he can thereafter do no common act. All that he does is good and acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For such a man, living itself, will be sacramental, and the whole world a sanctuary. As you go out this week into the secular world, be that seed, be that sower, spread the seed. Represent God. Tell him, I want to bring you glory and honor and please you in whatever I do. No more division between sacred and secular. All the world to a Christian is sacred. It becomes our sacrament of living. Let's pray. Father, this morning, our hearts are touched by stories, but Lord, we know there are thousands, probably millions of stories just like this of people who responded to the seed that was sown. By Christians who said, I will be God's servant and bring him glory wherever I'm placed. Lord, help us to be those people. Help us to be that person. Help us to give up this dual life that we live and honor you in all that we do, 100% of the time. And Lord, we leave the results to you, knowing that you desire all to come to you. So Lord, just help us to do our little part, and we want to give you the glory for the results. In Jesus' name, amen.